HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, for those of you who are in New York City. And my guest today is Nathaniel Johnson, otherwise known as Nate Johnson. He is a freelance journalist in San Francisco. He's written stories for National Public Radio, This American Life, New York, Outside, and Harper's. He began his career as a small-town newspaper reporter in southern Idaho, where he covered agriculture, police, I like that police beat and local <laughs> politics. <laughs> He's an editor at Meat Paper and works part time at the startup Delve All Natural, a skeptic's quest to d- discover the natural approach to diet, childbirth, healing, and the environment. Whether it really keeps us healthy. Sorry, I garbled that. I don't know why it, it, it turned up not quite. It's also a quest to have the longest subtitle in, in history. Yeah, I was so just going to say, I, and I was like, no I wonder I can't do it. Anyway, folks, the title of the book is All Natural. That's all you need to know. The author is Nathaniel Johnson. And I, can I tell you, Nate, this was one of the most delightful books I've read all year. I really enjoyed oh, it. Thank you. Uh, not only is it wonderfully well written, it's wonderfully well researched, and it's it's not a polemic in favor of one thing or the other. It's just an honest quest, literally, to find out what is better. Is the natural way that we all thought in the 70s and 80s was going to fix the world, or is it really technology that's going to save us? And I think you really um, summed up a lot of the issues that are pressing upon us now um, in a very neat way. So tell us how you got started with this book, because you, you started with the birth of your daughter, right? With yeah, exactly. Chapter. You know, I I grew up in this family that really believed that it was it was better to embrace technology, embrace nature rather than using technology to protect ourselves against nature, and it was a really wonderful childhood in many ways. And so that idea is really, really tenderly wedded to my sense of of childhood innocence and. Um, no TV, same, no computer until you were 10 or something like that, Exactly, right? yeah. No TV, uh, all natural foods, and, uh, you know, visiting, visiting naturopaths rather than doctors a lot of the time and living in a beautiful, natural place. Uh, 
And then, but at the same time, you know, there were ways in which that just failed catastrophically. And I got, I got a front row seat on that as well. And, and, and so seeing when my daughter was about to be born, I, that really, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road. I have to actually yep. put my ideals into practice. And I started thinking hard about these things because I, I, I was deeply sympathetic to both. Um, you know, I didn't want to just make the same mistakes that my parents had, but I, I wanted to um, have the same benefits that made my, my life so nice as a kid. Right. Well, I mean, you start out worried about whether or not you should have your baby at home or whether you should have it in a hospital and, you know, the whole fetal monitoring thing. I mean, the stuff that kind of passes for, um, you know, expectant mothers now is, is a normal way of having children. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of benefits to that. Probably the infant mortality rate is somewhat lower, but then you point out that in many cases it's not, and it often leads to um, additional surgeries that are ne- not necessarily essential, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I thought that was a really great way to start the book. Um, but then you go on to talk about microbials and our obsession with germs right. um, and how, um, you know, we've basically depopulated our guts and our environment of microbes. So, you know, tell us a little bit about what you found with that, because I thought that was a really interesting chapter. Yeah. So that, um, I, I started out actually from the, from starting researching raw milk, um, because I was just fascinated by the fact that all of these people were uh, going to great lengths to get uh, unpasteurized milk. Right. Milk that, you know, according to the, to the orthodoxy, is the lower quality, and they're paying way more to do it. And, you know, and taking much more risk. Black market. Yeah. They're taking a lot more risk in doing it. I myself, I have to tell you right up front, I am no fan of raw milk. Okay. I think that the milk is pasteurized for a very good reason. And um, I don't think you lose a lot of the nutritive qualities. I mean, I, I actually did quite a bit of research into this myself. But you tell me, you in, you ended up, even though you were happy to drink a glass of raw milk at the end of that chapter, it seemed to me that you would come down on the side of science with this one. Well, yeah, I think I think that, um, yeah, there's it's absolutely true that you don't lose uh, nutritive qualities. What you lose is, ta-da, the bacteria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and which is precisely why the um, why the um, pasteurization happens in the first place, and um, and you know we've really there's that's that's a double edged sword because we we evolved in this microbial soup, and um, so much so that microbes are are incorporated into our immune system. It's it's really hard to tell where we end and they begin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the scientists say that we're, humans are super organisms. We're not unique systems. We're uh, are an incorporation of our, our environment in a very fundamental way. Um, and so um, there's, the, the science is really good. There's really a lot of evidence that this rise in autoimmune disorders, allergies, asthma, et cetera, are related to this, this wall of sterility that we've, um, we've erected <clears throat> around ourselves. So, um, and, and when you look at what's protective, uh, the big studies where they've said, okay, there's some of these kids that aren't getting asthma and allergies. What's, what's different about them? And they've narrowed it down to growing up on a farm and especially protective is drinking raw milk. Um, so, so the science 
you know, I come down on the science, absolutely, but the science sort of points in both directions, and uh, um, that's sort of what I ended up finding in a, in a lot of these cases. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, and there is a real risk, especially if you have a, a compromised immune system. But for adults, you know, drinking raw milk is about like eating sushi. You know, the risk is pretty minimal. But for children, it's much greater. And um, I think that people who are not advocates of raw milk will point to kids who have been poisoned with uh, E. coli, especially 0157H7, where they wind up with HUS, hemolytic urea syndrome, or whatever that is, where your kidneys fail for the rest of your life. And you're, dial- yeah. you're on dialysis for the rest of your life. And I think that's where, um, you know, the raw milk contingent has a hard time hard time coming back from that argument you know like however many allergies you may prevent do you actually want to have to be on dialysis for the rest of your life like what's the trade-off there and yeah, i know exactly. that raw milk disease is is relatively rare but not as rare as one might think given how small the distribution is um you talk a lot about or i think it's organic what is it orga- organic farms or organic organic pastures organic pastures a really big dairy out in california one of the biggest raw milk uh, providers and and that guy has um you know, he just completely dissed you in terms of the science that you showed him. All those footprints, those um, pulse field. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about—the footprint. <laughs> yeah, the the um, the actual footprint of a particular bacteria, and he was like, "No, I don't see that." Even though right. it was his plan. <laughs> well, well, in his defense, the ones the ones that I actually showed him um, were wrong. The state had given me the, right. the wrong copies. Um, but yeah, I mean, he. He is this guy is is a real showman, and that's he's a businessman, and he he his business depends on him kind of talking up these um, you know being this kind of carnival barker and t- talking up raw milk. Very interesting, um, even at and, the possible loss of his entire property. I mean, I would personally, I would sue him if I were got if one of my kids got sick from that. Yeah, and right? I, I think I'm sure that I'm sure that people have, um, yeah. and it's it's the thing you know it's this there's there you see this on both sides you see this mm-hmm. on the um, on the raw milk side of people saying oh really for kids even for kids the, there's no risk it's not if you do it right there there really isn't a risk it's and then you see it on the other side saying no we need absolute certainty we can't have any possibility of anybody getting sick and when you the, but neither of those things really make sense, you know, because if you if you look at how, you know, the cost to society in this increase in type 1 diabetes and asthma and allergies and maybe re- related to MS, there's even a, a hypothesis that autism rates are rising because of uh, the autism is related to autoimmune disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the risks may really cut in both directions. And uh, it's up to the science to, to find ways that we can safely re-enter our microbial homeland. Um, but that's going to take a long time. Yeah, and in the meantime, you don't want your kid getting um, E. coli 175, uh, age 7. Yeah, um, or, or MS. Or MS, yes. But, I mean, I think that, you know, it, it's when you brought that up I, and the whole sort of autism controversy and, and you'd go into this with your chapter on vaccines and whatnot, which I guess is in the same chapter. Um, but when you talk, I know we're going way off track here, but this was mm-hmm. so, I mean, this book was yeah. so good, Nate. Honestly, I really urge <laughs> readers to go out and get this right away because it just brought up so many interesting controversies um, without necessarily pointing the finger 
anger in either way, which I really appreciated how balanced it was. But, um, you know, when you bring up whether or not autism is caused by autoimmune disorder, and then I thought, well, they used to think it was uh, because you live near, you know, uh, an, uh, electric wires. And then right. they thought it was because you got vaccines and you, or, and you totally debunked that theory. And then, you know, it's like every, as you point out, it over and over throughout the book, there's like a new theory for everything that happens yeah. you know, about every five years. And, and, so, and it, it reverses 180 degrees often. Exactly. It's like everything that you were doing is actually harmful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So let's, in that case, let's move on because you had a long chapter about sugar. And one of the things that really struck me about the chapter, um, and of course, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s, so I, I grew up in the 70s. That was when I was in my 20s and stuff. And sugar was a bad, bad thing then. And that's when yeah. all the sort of, you know, honey sweetened and maple flavor sweetened things came and baking just degenerated into a horrible pile of sort of muddy, crunchy foods. And it was just so sad. <laughs> We weren't allowed to eat sugar. You're and describing my childhood right I now. I know, exactly. And by the way, I have to tell you off the right, not off the right, but I have very dear friends in Nevada City, and I have visited Nevada City, so I know exactly what the environment uh-huh. was, okay? So um, right down to the Yuba River. So in the chapter on sugar, you quoted The Sugar Blues, which was a really popular book in the 70s at that time. And then, but in the recent past, both Gary Taubes, who's, you know, made a fortune on railing about sugar and diet, and Robert Lustig, who's much more scientific, but still kind of the same kind of thing, have come out with almost equally um, strident critiques of sugar and its impact on health. But one of the things I loved about that chapter is you gave us a quick trip through sugar history, and you showed how sugar started to become used as an energy food um, back in the day when people just really didn't have anything to eat except for a little bread or porridge and tea with sugar. So can you just like give us a quick thumbnail of that? Because I thought that was fabulous. For me to learn, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think I think just to set you know to set it up from, I think that the reason why sugar continues to be this um, touchstone, where you know every every ten years or so someone can make a million dollars with an anti-sugar book, right, yep. um, is because there's there's some underlying truth to it that it really has saturated our society with with sugar, and it goes back to um, the Victorian era, when the there were these sugar colonies in the in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. and uh, they were supported by the um, by the various monarchs in Europe that were um, that were making a lot of money off of sugar, and then shipping these the sugar back to the um, back to England. Say, I've, I've mostly focused on the English speaking history, and sugar just fit perfectly into the. Um, unfolding industrial revolution at that time because you had all of these laborers who were moving off the farm and they were giving up their traditional foodways, you know, where they would get a little milk from the family cow and, you know, have their their root cellar for the winter. Um, So they were moving into the cities and working at these big factories and they didn't have access to any of those foods anymore and they needed things that they could prepare quickly. Mm and sugar fit in perfectly for that because it was this. It was all ready to go. They mostly drank it in tea, um, which is another colonial product getting shipped over from India, sugar from the um, West Indies. And it kind of gave them this little boost, this little hint of satisfaction and you know feeling of that they were getting some of this luxury from this society, you know, this mm-hmm. uh, industrialized society that they were participating in. And then, of course, they go back to the hellish <laughs> uh, assembly lines. Um, and that's sort of, I, I think that's a real metaphor for the way, 
the way society has changed, you know, that we, we get this little hint of the luxury that we're participating in and exchange it for hours and hours and hours of work. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a very interesting quote, which I'm going to read right now. Um, you called sugar a fair symbol of our excesses and the creation of our culture of desire. And I think that the the point about sugar and certainly something that um, recent studies have shown and whether or not this will be debunked in the future, I don't know. But recent studies showed that, for instance, high fructose corn syrup does not stimulate the satiety button in your brain. So you don't know you've had enough to eat. And I think to a certain extent, sugar encourages a similar behavior in the sense that you keep wanting to eat more and more sweets even though you may be full but it's like it's just so damn good you know right (laughs) you keep eating it or drinking it or whatever it is that you're doing with it i myself am drinking a coca-cola right now (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just the fructose portion in the high fructose corn syrup that doesn't that doesn't cue the satiety but um but both but sugar is similar and high fructose corn syrup is similar in that it it cues wanting, you know, mm-hmm. it's in what we think of as sort of the pleasure that we get from sugar is really this kind of like, I want more, I want more. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting, I mean, I, I thought you made such a good point about the sort of metaphor for our general excess in society in terms of desiring more and more and material wealth and material things and, you know, whatever. But anyway, let's take a quick break right now. It's uh, halfway through the half hour. And uh, we'll be right back with Nathaniel Johnson uh, and his wonderful book, All Natural. You're listening to Broke Down by the California Honey Drops on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com We're back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and my guest on the phone today is Nate Johnson, the author of All Natural, a new book that just published from uh, Rodale, right? And yeah. um, and it's kind of um, an examination of the, the all-natural versus the all-techno world that we live in today. It was really, really well done. Um, I'm going to skip right ahead to, um, because we are running out of time a little bit, about uh, sort of politics, uh, industry. The tra- You just have a long section on agriculture and, the, and also the idea of the tragedy of the commons, which if people have never heard of that, which I hadn't before I started reading mm. books like yours. Um, well, why don't you tell them, because I, you obviously know it better than I do, because I've never read that particular book or essay or whatever it is. Yeah. It's a short essay that everybody should go out and read. It's a, it's it's available on if you just Google "tragedy of the commons," mm-hmm. um, and basically it's by this guy Garrett Hardin. It was published in Science back in the in the late '60s, I think. Um, and basically, he describes a situation in so you, you've got this village, and there's a, a common field where everybody can graze their their cattle, and 
it makes sense for every individual to try and put as many cattle on that field as possible to get as much free goods from it as possible for, and fatten up the cows on that grass. Um, but, of course, if that happens, then it turns into this muddy mess where every, everybody's putting, you know, it turns into a feedlot, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and this, is a, this is a metaphor for what happens all over the world with the environment, where we have free resources like clean air. Um, and people say, well, I, it makes sense for me just to pollute that because I don't, there's no loss to me and it's, you know, it's free. Um, but then everybody ends up doing that and, um, and messing it up. So it's this where, where self-interest comes into um, conflict with, um, with basic economics and you have this kind of uh, fundamental problem that's very hard to get around. And his, he said there's only two solutions for this. One is coercive government, just taking control of the commons and regulating it. And the other is to do away with the commons and privatize it and turn it all into private property. Um, so that so each that's, person that's, is responsible for their bit as opposed to having a collective responsibility towards exactly. the health of the commons. Um, so let's apply that to the to the chapter in your book where you talk the most about that. And um, you, you sort of wound up with kind of an optimistic view of people versus industry, um, you know, in terms of like um, people coming together in a collective situation. In your case, you used forestry as an example, but right. I can think of lots of others, you know, public spaces where people are growing vegetables or, you know, all of that stuff that's becoming more and more common across the country. Exactly. Um, you know, how, how in a country as polarized as ours, um, how, how does that play out in terms of people abandoning that sort of selfish and greedy aspect that has marked our industrial age so clearly in the last hundred years? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, that it's, it's, it can be Garrett Hardin's position that he they put out in Tragedy of Commons was that this, you know, the only, humans are fundamentally greedy, and this will never be solved, basically. Mm-hmm. And Eleanor Ostrom, this, this other economist who came later, and she, was, she just passed away, she was the first woman to, to win the Nobel laureate in economics, pointed out that people don't work like that. They work together. They, you know, they form community partnerships, and they hold each other accountable, and they make agreements. And um, there's some middle ground between just coercive, um, you know, kind of, communist style government and and all and free market uh private property that and and i think that's really what you see in these community gardens where you you know it's hard work people are annoying and you have to deal with the politics of who didn't hoe their weeds or who didn't come in and uh, and water or you know whose turn is it to get the the plot um but we figure it out uh and if if we're willing to do the hard work of, of those local politics um, really beautiful things can bloom from that. Well, I think that's really nice. I can tell you live in California. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a hard bit in New York. Haven't you, have you in your own neighborhood experienced you know some some example of that? Hell no, no, I'm, I'm lying. <laughs> But we, you know, we don't have a lot of space. I, I'm from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We don't have a lot of space for community gardens anymore. So, um, and to tell you the truth, I wasn't at all interested in them. You know, 15 years ago, now I've become like obsessed with gardening. But, um, uh-huh. you know, I, I have my own garden, and 
at my old house where I grew up and, and that sort of does it for me. But I, you know, I don't know what to say to answer that question. I don't, I see it out in Brooklyn. I see a lot of people participating in community gardens. I see a lot more in the way of sort of CSAs and, you know, all of that kind of development is happening. Um, but do I see people working together cooperatively to change legislation in the city? Mm, no, not really. No. Mm. It's, I, I don't know. I don't think we're as evolved here in that sense as you are out on the West Coast. Well, it's hard, especially on Manhattan, where things are just booming and, you know, there's so much, uh, you know, just a well, fascination just, with real estate rather oh, yeah. than sort of going back and like, okay, let's grow some, some vegetables on top of this real estate. Well, you know, some people are doing that, but I just don't see it as like a big community, a broad community-based project. I see it as kind of little pockets of people who come together and kind of pat themselves on the back and say, aren't we so cool because we do this? But it's not yeah. really, um, you know, maybe up in the sort of uh, economically disadvantaged areas where a lot of that work is going on, there may be more of that sort of communal feeling, but I'm not so sure about that. But um, you mentioned the destructive cycle of legislation and agricultural economies, um, and this was sort of related to the meat industry, but also I think it applies to row crops as well, and, yeah. you know, and sort of the whole issue of... of you know, farms farms uh, are taking subsidies, and then the market gets glutted, or you know, I don't know. It's like there is a cycle where we legislate for stuff in agricultural interests, and then um, something changes to, in that agricultural profile, and it and it it ends up not benefiting people, or particularly or farmers, particularly. Exactly. So, um, yeah. can you give us a little thumbnail of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that uh, what what tends to happen. Uh, is because we're so far away from our food, because it's become uh, something that happens, you know, out in Iowa rather than um, on the next block. Uh, we don't, we're not really in touch with agricultural realities. And so what people do, in, the only real information they have about their food tends to be the price. And so people push for lower and lower prices. And, as a result, the farmers um, respond to that and and get um, more environmentally damaging. You know, they're taking taking more out of the commons. They uh, are crueler to animals, but they're doing all of these things because we, the consumers, have asked them to. Um, but then, every once in a while, we notice how you know, how terrible things have gotten on the farm, and we legislate and we say, "Look, you." Uh, you really can't uh, keep your pigs in these gestation uh, crates where they can't turn around. Mm -hmm. They can only stand up and lay down. And so what happens then is, is that the pig farming industry moves off seas, you know, over, overseas more, and, it's, and we start getting our pork. We're still trying to buy the, the lowest-priced pork, so, but we're just buying it from Mexico now. So we, it pushes it farther away, and... And the cycle continues. It gets more inhumane, more ugly, more environmentally damaging. Right, right. It's really interesting. I mean, I think that uh, I do see the pendulum swinging to a certain extent, and I, I'm going to... Um I've, I spend a lot of time thinking about and reading about the livestock industry, and I do think that things are changing there. Um, certainly, the cattle industry has morphed itself quite extensively. The pig industry is still a scandal and a shonda. Um, <clears throat> but it, it is amazing how we don't really notice until we have to, and then now we have the cheap food system, and, and, and we're mad that we're not 
that it's not more carefully raised and that uh, genetically modified or genetically engineered organisms are coming into play. And, and, right. and, and now it's like a lot of finger pointing at farmers and at food industry um, without really understanding the economies of scale that these things provide and the, and the sort of economic uh, locomotion it provides nationally in terms of jobs, um, in terms of our GDP, in terms of our exports, et cetera. And it's really, it's kind of a sad situation. It's a very sad situation. Absolutely. I mean, and there's a really simple solution to it, I point out, that if instead of pointing the fingers at, at food industry and farmers who are really just doing exactly what we've told them to do with, right. our, with our dollars, we could point the fingers at ourselves and, and legislate on ourselves and say, look, Americans, we're Americans, we just think it's unethical to raise food this way, so we'll we'll say that it's illegal to buy food instead of saying it's illegal to grow food, um, <laughs> then, then everything would change because instead of just exporting it to another country, then we'd just raise the bar and farmers would respond to that in a flash and would, would produce better, tastier, you know, more, more ethical food for us. I know the problem is, is they would have to charge us more money and there are so yes. many people in this country who would just freak out. And justifiably. I mean, you know, our, our, I mean, as President Obama said, our minimum wage hasn't been raised in, you know, what, five years, seven years. Uh, you know, it's just really hard to make that nut. I think the whole pattern of eating needs to change, but um, we're not going to go into that because we don't have time. So okay. <laughs> um, sum up your conclusions about this book, like where you seem very optimistic about things. I, I loved the attitude about it. So, you know, what, what was your final takeaway here? Did you have a, an epiphany yeah. at the end of it? Well, I mean, you know, I, I started out really trying to decide which, which was better, technological or natural. Mm-hmm. But the, the closer that I looked to that, the fuzzier that line became, right? The, mm-hmm. uh, it's really hard to, to find out, you know, is natural gas natural, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and really, these are, these are human definitions. That they're two different ways that we look at the world rather than two ways that the world is. And... Um, nice. I think, I think that it's more about, you know, there's dangerous things in both ways, and it's more about the human solutions, you know, finding the, the ways that we can organize our communities and organize our politics um, to make the world a healthier, happier place, um, rather than, than, you know, choosing this arbitrary definition in between what's, what's natural and what's technological. Oh, I love that, Nate. That's great. So um, do you have any readings, any events coming up, anything you want to promote quickly before we wound up here? I do. I have. Uh, um, well, the next one is um, not until mid-March. I'm going to be in Miami, of all places, uh, down, down in Broward County for a fundraiser called the Literary Feast, and then down in um, uh, Coral Gables for a reading um, so if you're in that part of the country, uh, you know, you can check out my website. I'm at nathanieljohnson.org, and uh, there's all that information there. And, and I'll be updating that as more things come online. That sounds great. And it's Nathaniel A-E-L, folks, not I-E-L. Thanks. Right, yeah. <laughs> Just in case you're Googling. Um, next week, I still really haven't decided who my guest is going to be. It may be... Um Well, we'll just keep it a surprise. But until then, thanks to my sponsor. Thanks to my engineer, Jack. And thank you, Nate Johnson, for joining me today on Straight Note Chaser. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, 
or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.